Thank you, Barry. Good morning. We continue in our time of worship. You return your Bible to 2 Samuel 12. We're back in 2 Samuel. They're reminded in times like these of how important corporate worship is because we, we're reading all of these various and hearing about all these various narratives in our culture, which are just the fruit of alienation, separation from God. Remember that. Let's not misdiagnose. And corporate worship is designed for us to remind us that there is one narrative that's going to prevail in the end. All others have termination dates. And that narrative is centered on a king that's already emerged victorious. We are more than conquerors through Christ. That may be one of the most important verses we could reflect on these days. But it's as true today as it was the day you were saved. And you felt that in your bosom. You felt that in your heart and affections. It's as true today. And it just may be that we're going through these times for that truth that we've known academically and intellectually to be cherished experientially in a way that we've never cherished it before. That's why the psalmist said, it's good that I've been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. You ever thought about that? Good that I've been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. It's not that he didn't know them. Likely the one who wrote Psalm 119 had the law memorized. There's a way of knowing it intimately. Those truths, those glorious truths centered on the victorious king. That requires suffering and trials. So let's go to the Word of God and let's be reminded of what truth is, what reality is today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace that is mediated to us in our victorious King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took your wrath for sinners such as I, reversing the guilt in his resurrection and in so doing, crushing the serpent's head. We look forward to the day that the crushing of the serpent's head is consummated and manifested in its full display. Until that day, we are those who pilgrim and sojourn, marked and characterized by hope, because our hope is a living hope in a person, Jesus Christ. May we behold that hope today, even in a difficult and painful text, such as 2 Samuel 12. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week would have been the 60th birthday of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer who was arrested in July of 1991 for horrific crimes and sins against humanity, which were committed from the years 1978 to 1991. He was given 16 life sentences. Biblically, he should have been given the death penalty. But remarkably, two years after being put in prison through the ministry of his father, who was a born-again believer, and the prison chaplain. Jeffrey Dahmer 
was converted to Jesus Christ. He placed repentant faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. He believed, he came to believe by the regenerating work of the Spirit that his sins were atrocious and worthy of judgment and that Jesus Christ had taken the judgment. Well, unsurprisingly, his conversion was a scandal. One college professor famously said, if Dahmer goes to heaven, I don't want to be there. It's also a scandal for another fellow inmate who who killed Dahmer in prison the end of 1994. Now, assuming that Dahmer was converted, his sins were forgiven. His sins were taken away, as our text tells us in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan speaks to David. They were put away by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet there were still severe consequences. In fact, Dahmer told everybody that would listen that based on what the Word of God says, he did not deserve to be put in prison for life. He deserved to be put to death because the Word of God had become his authority as he was converted to Christ. And yet there were severe consequences for him. As the psalmist said of God concerning repentant Israel, In Psalm 99, you were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoing. Note the tension there. In other words, there's no sinner too notorious to be saved. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said he was the chief of sinners. I don't think he's engaging in hyperbole. I believe under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul is saying, I am the worst of the worst, and Jesus saved me. He can save anybody. There's no sinner too notorious to be saved, but there are still consequences, severe consequences, to sin. And we saw that last time in chapter 12. Remember, in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, David saw what he should not be seeing. He sent for the object of his eyes and and twisted affections, and he seized her. And God's response, in fact, it's the only time we read the name God or Lord in 2 Samuel 11 He saw it all. In chapter 11, verse 27, it says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, was wicked or evil, literally, in the Lord's sight. So God's response, he saw it. And then in 2 Samuel 12, by unfathomable mercy, he sent Nathan the prophet to David to rebuke him, to bring the word of God to bear on this man who had been unrepentant for likely over a year. 
And this is a tax for us all. King David is a man after God's own heart. And this text is teaching us that the kingdom of God will not tolerate wickedness even from him. Even from what may be the greatest man outside of Jesus Christ himself in history. Yes, David's sins were taken away. That's what verse 13 tells us from last time. He confessed his sin and, David, and Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And yet, he also discovers there's no exemption from the old dictum, the inspired dictum of Numbers 32-23, be sure your sins find you out. Be sure your sins find you out. And for the rest of history, every believer can look at David and say, if God would severely discipline David, who was the king, who was the man after his own heart, he must take sin very seriously. So forgiveness is given through the shed blood of Jesus Christ to those who repent and believe. And it is given to us to, to melt our hearts, to take away our guilt, to take away our condemnation, and to give us hope. Yet consequences are also there to warn us and everyone else to not trifle with sin. And the first consequence of what David did, the child that was conceived with his tryst with Bathsheba would die. We saw that in verse 14. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Now, having said that, our canon is closed. Now, when I say the canon is closed, it's still a living word to us, right? This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. But we can never say with authority today that something like this happens today. The only reason we know that the son's death was due to David's sin was because a direct divine revelation was specifically aimed at David. You did this, and this is what happened. And we've seen that the Lord did these kind of one-of-a-kind acts with his covenant head. So, for instance, with Abraham, he was told to lay his son up on the altar. He would do these one-of-a-kind acts with his covenant heads to teach us something of the nature of the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of these covenants. In this case, the death of David's son was not only a punishment, but it was a punishment in the substitute. A substitute, 
a son of David dies so that the sinner doesn't have to. But having said that, while the scripture does say that an individual bears guilt for only for his sins, that's Ezekiel 18:20, it's also a given. We're going to see this in the narrative to come, starting next week in chapter 13. It's a given that children suffer for the sins committed by their parents. They don't die for the sins committed by their parents, but they suffer for the sins committed by their parents. And that's why we should all follow David's example in this text. The first thing we see is David pleads. Now notice in verse 15, then Nathan went to his house. He has spoken the word to, to David, the authoritative word. You are the man. David has heard that word and he has confessed his sin. And Nathan has said, the Lord has taken away your sins. You shall not die, but your child will die in your place. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Now, I want you to note how the writer subtly makes his point here. Uriah's wife. He's making a point. This is bad. David took Someone else's wife. All right? And just because David has been forgiven does not mean consequences are not coming. It says he became sick. And yet, one of the evidences, and this is so important for us, of one's spiritual maturity is how he or she responds to the pain. That comes from his or her own sin. One reason that David is described as a man after God's own heart is not because he sinned less than everybody else, but he was a notorious repenter. He was a radical repenter. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. And we see here he has changed from the man we saw in chapter 11. He's changed. Notice in verse 16. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Now, we have seen exceptions. But in the main, David was a man of prayer. He wrote the majority of the Psalter. And in that Psalter, imagine, if David was not a man of prayer, we would not have some glorious, important prayers David, in the main, was a man of prayer. A glorious verse in this regard is 
in Psalm 109, when he has been forsaken, he has been betrayed, one of those he has deeply loved has turned on him. And if you're in ministry, it's going to happen. If you're in spiritual leadership, it's going to happen. And it's one of the most painful things that can happen on the planet. And he says in Psalm 109, in return for my love, they accuse me. But I give myself to prayer. I love that. But I give myself to prayer. And here is the glorious providence of God. Even if it's extraordinarily painful, it drives you to the face of God. It's a grace. It's a grace. And here he sought God on behalf of his child. Now, was it wrong for David to pray for the life of his son, even though God had already declared that his son was going to die? No. Scripture gives us several examples of God relenting from a threatened judgment in response to one's fervent prayer. 1 Kings 21, 29 is one example. Doesn't mean that God doesn't know the future. Doesn't mean that God is not sovereign. But God has ordained the ends as well as the means. And it teaches us that prayer does matter. The prayers of the righteous availeth much. Prayerlessness says... God's not going to do anything. I don't trust him. It it, it teaches that I'm too strong. I'm too self-sufficient. But not only did David pray, he fasted. He fasted. Walter Tantry says that fasting is a refusal to be distracted from what we are requesting of God. It's an expression of wholehearted engagement with God concerning the subject of our petitions. Maybe a time for God's people to fast in these times. Much more effective than some of the methods we're using. And I find it glorious that David seeks the very God who had pronounced such painful consequences on him. You ever thought about that? He goes to the face of the one who has pronounced these consequences. But even with that, the face of God was the place that he longed to be. That's a sign of health. That's a sign of maturity and faith. The grace of God that had put away his sin is the very thing that drew David to God. In other words, the explanation for the contrast between the David of chapter 11 and the David of chapter 12 is the impact that the Word of God had on him from Nathan. The impact that the promise of grace and mercy and forgiveness had on him, communicated by Nathan. In fact, we we read the name Lord one time in chapter 11. We read the name Yahweh 13 times in this 
chapter. Well, notice me in verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. That was the state they perceived him to be in. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. This would have been devastating. Perhaps nothing more devastating. But I want you to note the role of worship. And incidentally, without getting too specific, I've seen this very thing with families here. Notice with me in verse 20. David has has pled, and now David worships. He worships. That's the mark of someone who's been deeply hurt. He worships. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Now, verse 20 is full of action. Ten verbs in just brisk succession. Ten verbs in one verse. I'm not sure there's another verse in the Bible with that many verbs. And because we never want to lose sight of the fact that the Old Testament isn't just examples for us for living. All right? It is that. Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 10, it is that. But the Old Testament is preparing us also for gospel realities. I think there is a glorious foreshadowing taking place here. Note, when the son of David dies in the sinner's place, David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. Now, you know in the Bible, there's a whole lot of Pauline theology about the change of clothes. He changed his clothes, which represents new righteousness. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Does that sound familiar to you? This is the mark of the saved life. It's glorious. He arose. He washed. He anointed himself. In this case, the anointed king is the one doing the washing and anointing and changing of the clothes. He went into the house and worshiped. That's the mark 
of the saved. That's the characteristic of those who have been saved by the son of David who died in their place. But this is more than a foreshadowing. It's also an inspired example to all of us in times of crushing pain. Give ourselves to prayer. Give ourselves to worship. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's not what we do today. Is anyone among you suffering? We, we do a whole lot of other things. Let him pray. It's the only prescription we're given. Let him pray. And David shows us here that worship and grieving can and must go together. Indeed, it's in times, and I think every believer here would, would, would amen this, it's in times of pain and sorrow that my antenna, antenna is most attuned to God. Sometimes the pain is so significant, I, I do sense that he's asleep. Psalm 44, even the psalmist said, wake up, O Lord. But then by faith, we come back to the scriptures and we ask the spirit to restore unto us the peace and the communion that sometimes it's so painful to, you can't even sense it. David's given us an example here. Now notice in verse 21. And then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? Because that just didn't seem normal to them that he is responding this way. You, you fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. A couple of things here. And this is so important. First of all, and this is not to pick on any tradition. I'm not here to do that. But David sees no place for a prayer for the dead. All right? He's done praying for his son the son has died. We don't pray for the dead. We pray for the dead's family. But we don't pray for the dead. The destiny is set. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That text does not suffer from a lack of clarity. The second thing. Some take David... To be simply saying that he, like the child, will someday die. I shall go to him. And I respect that view. There are godly people, great scholars who, who take that view. But I believe what David is saying here 
is that he expects a future personal reunion. I think that's what he's saying. And, and for those who have experienced and gone through this kind of grief, whether the child died before delivery, by miscarriage, abortion, or after delivery, these words, I believe, offer great comfort. Now, let me say here the beginning, because I do think I feel like I have to address this. This is a very difficult discussion, but we preach through books, and we don't avoid topics. Some topics are more difficult than others, more painful than others, sometimes more controversial than others. But it's a difficult discussion for at least three reasons. And we've got to be honest about these reasons. First of all, the Bible gives no direct statements regarding children who die in infancy. The Bible does not give any direct statements on that. Second, just as we saw in Psalm 51 verse 5 when David's confession, in sin my mother conceived me. You don't become a sinner when you actually commit sin, you're born a sinner. You're conceived as a sinner. So a child is born with original sin, guilty and corrupt. A child is conceived with original sin. And the third reason this is a difficult discussion is that we recognize as evangelicals that God has only made one provision for salvation, and that is through the substitutionary work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way to be united to him is by repentance and faith. The only way to benefit from his substitutionary work is by repentance and faith. That's what makes this discussion, those three reasons, a difficult discussion. But having said that, I do believe that the scripture gives evidence that we can have great confidence and hope in God's eternal care of children who die. Now let me establish that. First of all, our greatest comfort should not reside in trying to figure out the destiny of babies. That's not our greatest comfort. But in trusting in the character of God. Genesis 18, verse 25. Moses writes, Will not the judge of the earth do what is just will he not do what is right in other words that's telling me is that if there is someone under judgment and goes to hell they're not a victim because the judge of the earth always does what is just he always does what is right he bats a thousand on that he's infinite eternal and unchangeable on that truth 
Revelation 16, Revelation 19 too. Revelation 16, 7. Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. That's where I find my greatest hope right there. True and just are your judgments. He's never gotten it wrong. There is not a judge, an earthly human judge, that has ever batted a thousand. The best of men are men at best. But this judge, he is true and just. Second, I do believe it's significant that David's son died on the seventh day. Why do I say that? That is, it would have been on the eighth day he would have been circumcised. He did not receive the covenant sign of circumcision. I remember we had to bury, when I first got here 10 years ago, we had to bury a two-week-old. The grandmother wanted me to baptize the two-week-old. It's tough to tell her, I can't do that. We're not going to trust in a covenant sign. Never mind the fact that we believe that we should baptize believers. And she was put off by me, and I, I got it. I, I recognized it, and I received it from her. I mean, it, this was a tragic time in this family's life. But this text tells us that the, the hope, David's hope, is not bound up in that covenant sign. I just think it's interesting that it was on the seventh day, before the eighth day. I think that that happened to preach to all believers from there on. Not to hope in signs and ordinances and, or anything like that. In other words, David is saying that he would be reunited to his son and it's not based on the assurance of a covenant sign or the fact that his son has entered into that covenant. Of course, in the old covenant, they entered into the covenant through circumcision. Which means this is not a covenant baby. At this point, third, and this is a little more controversial, so I say it humbly. If you disagree with me, I'll respect your position. Just respect mine. I base my belief that God does not condemn babies or those who do not have moral or mental capacities, all right? Primarily on Romans 1, verse 19 and 20. On the board it says, For what can be known about God is, plainly to, is plain to them. Now who's them? All the nations, all the peoples of the earth. God has revealed himself to them through general revelation. All right? He's revealed it to every tribe and tongue across the world. That he is a creator. That there is a God who stands over them. Because God has shown it to them. Paul is explaining why God would condemn someone who's never heard the gospel. 
He's explaining in Romans 1 why God would condemn someone who does not have the word of God. And he is saying they're not innocent. Because what they have done is taken the revelation they do have and they've exchanged it for a lie. They have proven they are idolaters. And he says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived by these people, all the peoples of the earth, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, you're not born an atheist. That's why it takes nothing to persuade a young person of Santa Claus because they have a sense of transcendence. They were born with it. All right? You have to send your way to atheism. It says, they have clearly perceived these things in the things that have been made. And so notice, so, or maybe your translation would read, therefore, they are without excuse. In other words, here's what they would do with the gospel if they had it. The very thing they're doing with general revelation. General revelation is not sufficient to save anybody, all right? It's not efficient to salvation, but it is sufficient to show that we, by nature, exchange the truth about God for a lie. But I think the key word here is so, or the word therefore in that last line. So they are without excuse, or therefore they are without excuse. It seems to be saying, Paul seems to be saying here at the end of verse 20 that mankind would have an excuse if they haven't clearly seen in nature what God is like. And so I believe because babies and those who have, do not have mental, moral capacities Because they cannot process nature and make conclusions about God's grace and God's law and God's justice, it seems that they would fall into the category of having an excuse. I'm talking about the age of accountability. That language is not in the Bible. That's why we need to evangelize and evangelize and evangelize our children. I'm talking about something that does not have moral capacities. What that age is, I can't answer that. That's beyond my pay grade. Fourth, Scripture teaches that we will be judged on the basis of our deeds committed in the body. In other words, as I've heard John MacArthur say, judged by works, saved by grace. In other words, the judgment in the last day will be based on our works, whether our works were done in faith or in unbelief and idolatry. But all of us have works. Will our works be judged to have been generated by faith or unbelief. Let me give you a few texts for that. Jeremiah. 
Verse chapter 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see that? Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is coming. He's going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he's done. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead standing before the throne, and books were opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Baby without moral capacities, mental capacities, cannot do. In Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. Notice, it's we are judged by our deeds done in the body. That is, we're going to face the judgment seat of Christ and be judged not on the basis of our original sin, which is true of all of us, but for our sins committed in our lifetimes, for our works. And each will answer according to what he's done, not for the sin of Adam. One biblical text I think is particularly helpful here. After Israel had rebelled against God, and God judged them, and and he sentenced that generation to die in the wilderness where they would not experience the promised land, their inheritance. Deuteronomy 139 says this. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So those, of course they were sinners, no one's denying that, they were born in with original sin but they had no capacity to process good and evil, they would come into the land. In other words, God specifically exempted from the judgment those who have no knowledge of good or evil. John Newton, the great hymn writer of Amazing Grace, believed that. He wrote to friends who had lost a child, and I love these words. I hope you're both well reconciled to the death of your child. Of course, he's writing in a day when the infant mortality rates were sky high. I cannot be sorry for the death of infants. How many storms do they escape? Nor can I doubt in my private judgment that they are included in the election of grace. Charles Hodges, the great Princetonian, believed that. B.B. Warfield, the great Princetonian, believed that. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, believed that. He once preached at the funeral of the death of a child. He said this to grieving parents. Now let every mother and father here present know assuredly that it is well with the child if God hath taken it away from you in its infant days. And so could it be that Irenaeus was right when he wrote that Jesus became a zygote for zygotes? 
an embryo for embryos, a fetus for fetuses, infants for infants. Jesus was conceived with original righteousness. And that original righteousness, even of the pre-born Jesus, could it be that he covered the unrighteousness of the pre-born who would die in history? And for those infants after birth who would die? And then, and then we have to make a leap here. I, I realize this. His blood shed on the cross would cover those who do not have the moral capacities, the volitional capacities. And on judgment day, those children who have died in that state will be covered by the blood of Christ. So I believe grieving parents can have hope. That their children are in God's presence and are better provided for by God than even even the earthly parents. And I believe David had this comfort. I do. I believe that's what he's saying. I think that's why the grieving appeared to stop, even though I'm sure he was still hurting. But the Lord provided more. Comfort for him as well. Notice in verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Isn't that beautiful? For the first time we read Bathsheba is David's wife. And went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son. He called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. Sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Maybe this rubs you the wrong way. That now she is David's wife. But this is the miracle of grace. There's forgiveness. There's restoration. Even in the midst of consequences. Deep-seated consequences. Guess what? The rest of the Second Samuel is going to tell us about these consequences. The last 20 years of David's life will be hellish. But I think the most amazing grace of it all here is that it says the Lord loved Solomon. A born, a baby born by parents who began their relationship in adultery. And to drive home this blessing, the Lord sent Nathan back to David again. Not this time to say, you are the man, but to say, Jedediah will be Solomon's name, which means beloved of the Lord. Now, the last part of verse chapter 12, and we're going to go through this quickly, picks up where chapter 11 began. Remember, they were at, in war. They were in battle. The siege of Rabah had begun, and, and, as, and, and this took place before David even began to take notice of Bathsheba. And what we're going to see here is the victorious king bringing restoration to what was broken But it didn't occur until after his confession of sin. That brings us to the last part of this. We'll do this quickly. David restores. Spent a little too much time on the other discussion. But I think it's important. Now Joab fought against Reba of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Reba 
Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. I love that. He does not want glory. It's, it's the glory of the Messiah or the king, the, the anointed one that he wants to. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabah and fought against it and took it. He took the crown of their king from his head. This is Psalm 2, guys. The weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. All kings and kingdoms will pass away. And he brought out the people who were in it and he set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. This was the last great war of David's reign. He's restored to his former greatness. Closing thoughts. What a comfort it is for those who have blown it. This is a great comfort, the way this chapter ends. People who have just made a mess of their life. I think this last passage is given to you. That even though David had made a mess of his life, God does not abandon him in his discipline. He restores him back to his calling. Second, I think this last passage gives us a beautiful foretaste of the greater son to come. He will come and he will not just defeat the enemies of God, and there are many. He'll restore what is lost. Note, the city of waters is taken. I love that. The city of waters. See, Denic. Language, restored paradise. Additionally, David here has the crown of the enemy king placed on his head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. You say, what does that have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. Because this is pointing us to a greater reality, a greater hope. That's already been inaugurated. We're not having to wait for it. It's been inaugurated in time and space through his cross, through his resurrection, through his ascension to the right hand of God. And so as you look out and watch the news and you see chaos, and I recognize it too. I'm not oblivious to it. Remember, this text points us to that reality. The news does not point you to reality. This points you to reality. Revelation 19 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings, Lord of lords. Do you believe that? And I find that so comforting. Because this text closes, a dark text in many ways, by driving home once again the kingdom of God is such mediated by a king who will not only fix the broken things, he's going to restore order in a manner we have never seen before, even during the time of the Garden of Eden.
That's our hope. But for now, in 2 Samuel 12, we have to recognize what we see here will not last. That's why we need a better king. That's what's driving home, being driven home to those, the original audience. And we know that better king. And may every believer here, we're going to have disagreements on what we should do, how to respond. Trust me, there's going to be disagreements on those things. Those pale in comparison on the things we should agree on. The king is exalted. He is our hope. And because he has been exalted, we are victorious. We are more than conquerors. That's why this text at the very end of this chapter is so important to us. Let's pray. Father, as we close here, I feel like in some ways a general looking over his troops who've been in a tough battle this week. And it has been a tough week for so many reasons. Lord, as we close here today, I just want us to to pray and reflect on Philippians 4. Where David or Paul is writing to believers who are suffering. Like we are at Fisherville. Like many churches across the world today. I pray, Lord, that we, by grace and in the power of your spirit, would rejoice in you, Lord, always. That we would let our reasonableness be known to everyone. Because indeed, the Lord Jesus is at hand. I pray that we would not be anxious about anything. But in everything, everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And we have so much to be grateful for, Lord. We would let our request be made known to you. And Lord, I pray for Fisherville that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, would guard every believer's heart here today and their minds in Christ Jesus. And Lord, as we go about our week, and we're going to see a lot of nonsense on the news, a lot of scary things, I pray that we would meditate on, reflect on what is true, what is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, I pray we would think about these things. I pray that we would practice these things. And I pray that the God of peace will be with us. And we know that he will. In your son and by your spirit. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you, as we close here, join me in reciting this glorious doxology at the end of Hebrews 13? Now, 
May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.